Well, good morning, Two Cities Church. So glad to have each and every one of you with us. We see you out in the lobby. So glad to have you in this room if you're joining with us online. My name is Stephen Lawrence. I'm one of the pastors here. But specifically, I'm the pastor of leadership development. That may mean a lot of things. But I'll tell you what it primarily means is it primarily means that I oversee our residency program. You may not know this. You may be coming around for the first time or been here a while still to know. That's fine. But our church here at Two Cities has a two-year development program for people who would like to um, give their life to, to ministry in the church. And listen, it's not about me. It's really not. But in some ways, my story kind of filters through what we're trying to do. In a sense that when I was growing up in church, I was asking questions. I was asking questions about the Bible. I was asking questions, even big questions, theology-type questions. And pretty much what some people told me is, these are great questions. You need to go to seminary. And if you're not initiated, that's fine. Seminary is like Bible school. You, these are great questions. Why don't you go to a Bible school? And they'll answer those there. I'm like, cool. So I went to the Bible school and I was getting all those answers, whatever else. But I was asking like, what does this mean like for the church? Like, how does this work out in life and ministry? And in Bible school, they were like, great questions. Once you graduate, you can get a job in the church and then they can give you answers there. I'm like, okay. So I graduated and got a job in the church, try to figure things out. But really our heart and our residency program, if you put it this way, and my personal calling is to kind of bring those two worlds together. And so that's what we're trying to do in our two-year development program. People come to us, they may know exactly what they want to do, or they may say, you know what, I feel like the Lord wants me to give my life to his service. And we say, great, we're going to provide you high-level biblical and theological formation. So we offer a master's degree within our program at our church. That's a pretty cool thing. We said, not only that, we're going to give you meaningful ministry leadership experience. Our residents aren't getting our coffees and, you know, taking our messages or whatever else. Like, they're doing it. And maybe you, your family, or yourself are part of a ministry or our church, and you see our residents in it about having meaningful leadership experience. And then finally, we have kind of character formation discipleship. But yes, I'm a pastor of this church here, and I do things like I preach sometimes. I do things like I marry and I bury. But you know what I really focus my time on? My people, right? My people are the residents. And I try to give my life to them, and I try to get in their life underneath the hood. How has God created you? Who has he called you to be? How is he using your unique gifts for his service? And so if you know anyone who you think that would be a good fit for, maybe that's you. You just reach out to me. Say, I'm interested. I want to know more. love to talk to you more. Um, or maybe if you're here, you say, you know what? I'm not personally interested. You know who I am, what I'm doing. That's fine. But I'd love to be invested somehow in what's going on. Great. Reach out to me. We'd love to find a way to get you invested. But finally, I thought, wouldn't it be fun? If all of us together went through a residency development time this morning, you don't get a vote in it. That's what you're doing. We're going to take all of you together through a residency development time, namely through our passage here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. In a way, it fits well because this passage is similar to what we've been doing through our David series, looking at key moments and milestones in David's life. Obviously, this is a key moment. Obviously, this is a milestone. Um, but what this passage is different that it, in some ways it takes a big picture view. It like steps back out of David's life and looks at what the Lord has been doing from the beginning. It reaches all the way back to the garden and creation. It stretches all the way forward uh, to eternity because it, it really encompasses or it filters through our Lord Jesus himself. We see the big picture promises of God in this passage. Before I dive in, I, I wonder why do we struggle to believe God's promises? Why do we struggle with it? Maybe we don't really know his promises. And I get it. Listen, the Bible's a big book. It's hard to get through, and maybe you never made it through, and maybe you tried, whatever else, and that's fine. But maybe we can start walking through some of these things together today. 
Or maybe for you, if you're honest, you're kind of bored by this Christian thing. Sure, you're glad that God created you or whatever and thankful that he saved you from something and to something. But really, you've got a job to do, like literally, you're like, you got a job to do. 40 hours a week and you got a family that's, you know, run you ragged and you got any number of things. And you're like, honestly, I don't really look forward to coming and hearing the same things over and over and over again. I'm kind of bored with all this stuff. Maybe today we'll see how this isn't boring in the way that the Lord's promises really reach deep down into your heart and really work its way out through your life. But finally, for some of us here, we struggle to believe God's promises if we don't trust his heart. Maybe, maybe something has happened to you or someone close to you. You're like, you know what, if that's the way the world is, then I don't even want to trust a God that's connected with that. But as we'll see, um, of the Lord's faithfulness in this passage, the Lord is faithful um, to bring his promises to bear despite sin, despite suffering, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. This may be a passage that some of us aren't familiar with, and that's fine. Again, we are going to be walking through it together. I'm going to read the whole kind of swath here, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read that whole section all the way, 1 to 17. And we're going to see today how God keeps his promises in Christ. How God keeps his promises in Christ. So let's read that passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Now when the king, that's David, remember, yeah, I've been talking about. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, Well, see, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Well, go, do all that's in your heart. The Lord's with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt. That's the Exodus, right, Moses? But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall no longer afflict them as formerly from the time that I appointed judges of my people to the present. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your very body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Obviously, this is a key moment in David's life. You see it, a lot of promises are made to him. But in a way, these aren't really what he expected. Um, big things that happened, and maybe he was expecting something that he was going to do on behalf of God. But the Lord gave him such a moment and such a milestone that tied the rest of his life together. In the first couple of verses, it's like we get a mini tour of our series. 
right? The verse one, when the king lived in his house, well, David's the king. He's so much a king, he's got like a palace. You know what that means? David's the anointed. And the Lord has given him rest from his enemies. The Bible reminds us. That means that David's enemies, his foes or whatever, they've been vanquished. Whether that's the big old boy Goliath, whether that's the, the, he's been fighting the ites, or whether that's Saul, whoever else, it's like David is the warrior. And so the king said to Nathan, the king's talking to his prophet, Samuel, who in the book is written after, you know, the prophet Samuel, he's dead. But Nathan still has a prophet that he's, you know, getting together with. He's a friend. See now, David says, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. His desire may be misguided, but at least he, he's looking after the glory of the Lord. It's like David's a worshiper. A lot's happened in his life, and you can imagine. He's sitting there looking back thinking, well, maybe this is my time to do something for God. But guess what? This entire chapter isn't really even about David at all. It's about who our God is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do in Christ. As he looks at verse 6, he's like, hey, let me remind you, David. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. Isn't that great? He's reminding of the salvation. I've saved them people, and I've been with them. The humility of our God, that he is wandering, if you will, in the tabernacle. He is wandering um, his presence with his people as they wander. Verse 8, he's like, it's not just about all those people. What about you, David? He says, David, remember, I'm the one who took you from like nowhere and nothing just from shepherding people out in the, shepherding little sheep out in the wilderness. I took you from that place and made you a king. And then what does he say in verses 10 to 11? It's not just about what he's done for David. It's about he's wanted, what he's gonna do for everybody. And I will make a place for my people Israel. He's gonna give them finally um, the peace, the rest, the home they've been looking for. See, in some ways we are seeing these big picture promises of God come to pass. But the Bible uses a different word for promise, doesn't it? Maybe you see it there in your, uh, the, the text of Scripture, if you've got an open Bible in front of you, or even as you're flipping through or scrolling through. What, what's the subheading, if you put it that way? What's the little title of this chapter? Do you see it? God's what? God's covenant with David. Covenant's an odd word. It's an old word. Maybe one we don't really um, know anymore. And sometimes it helps to define things by comparing and contrasting. And so we can compare and contrast covenant with contract. I think we're pretty familiar with contracts, aren't we? Uh, think about your iTunes service agreement whenever you get a new update on your phone. Um, iTunes has made all of us liars. Nobody has read through all the, the, the stuff of that and agrees to all the terms and conditions. We don't even know. We're just, we're like frustrated that we've got to click two extra times to get the new software on our phone. Well, what's a contract? A contract's something you really don't think's that important. It's like, yeah, whatever, I'll, I'll sign up there to get the credit card, I'll sign up there to get the software, whatever else. The contract's not really important until it is, until something happens, and you try to get out, and you're like, oh, man. So that's what was going on the whole time, because the contract is where two individuals, when put it this way, kind of turn their backs on each other and try to, try to draw up something that protects their rights and what they're entitled to and their whatever, whatever, gives them what they want and punishes the other side if they ever break, break suit. As a contract, it's individuals being selfish. Covenant's supposed to be something better. It's supposed to be something better. Uh, the kind of a wooden definition of a covenant is, you know, two parties that come into a binding agreement with each other um, with a witness present. And we see a covenant maybe most often in our lives at a, at a wedding ceremony. 
Been to a wedding recently, what happens? Two parties, bride and the groom, what do they do? They make a binding agreement with each other, you know, for better, for worse, rich or poor, till death do we do us part. Binding agreement with each other in the presence of many witnesses. And whenever I do a, a wedding ceremony, I have the couple turn around. It's kind of cool to see all your friends and family, whatever. But it's also important is to remind them that they're making this agreement before both God and man. There are witnesses involved who can hold them accountable to the vows made. So, so in some ways, we are expecting covenant-type stuff when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, and it even reminds us of what's been before in the Bible. You remember um, the, the covenant God made with his people at Mount Sinai? Mount Sinai, right? The mountain after the Exodus. Moses, Moses, let my people go. Moses gets them out of there, takes them to a mountain. What happens at the mountain, at Mount Sinai? The Lord enters into a covenant with his people. He gives them the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, right? And then Moses and even the creation itself, the Old Testament tells us, is the witness to hold them accountable to that. But that covenant, that covenant thing, it's serious. It's, just, it's not something you can just break and go your own way. It's serious. It's almost as serious as Charlton Heston is in the old movie. Y'all seen that old movie recently, The Ten Commandments? I hadn't, so I just looked up the trailer, and that dude's serious. He's got like a furrowed brow the whole time. He's got a stuck-on beard as Moses, and he comes down from the mountain. There's this one scene in the old trailer. He goes, you know, if you will not live by the law, you'll die by the law. And like fire shoots out of his staff, and I'm like, whoa. I don't know if that happened in the Bible per se, but it's super serious. All right, we're expecting all this covenant type stuff. What happens when we get to David? We get something similar. The Lord is speaking for a long time by himself. This is the longest speech of God since Sinai, since Moses. Not only that, there's like official covenant type um, agreement type language. It's similar, but it's very different. How is it different? At this, this stage in the game, with what the Lord is doing with David, there's not two sides. It is the Lord and he himself and what he's gonna do. There are 17 verses. Well, really, the first two starts with David's like, you know what, I, I think I'll build a, a house for the Lord. I think I'll build a temple. And the Lord's like, no, no, let's put that on the shelf and let me tell you what I'm gonna do for you. 17 verses of a one-sided covenant where the Lord again and again and again says, this is the promise that I've made. This is how I'm gonna keep it. And this is why I'm gonna bless you again and again and again. It's what we call in church, Grace. The Lord's not looking for what we do for him. He's telling us what he has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't do well with this one-sided type covenant thing. Think about the last time you went to lunch with a friend or your in-laws or a pastor. You got you to arm wrestle over the bill, right? No, I got it. No, I got it. No, I got it. Why do you not want the bill? Why do you not want them to have it? Because then you're like, you're in their debt, right? It's like, well, I don't want my father-in-law to pick up the bill. I'm my own man. I'm going to pay for it or whatever else. Because you're calculating in your mind, when am I going to, well, then I got to schedule another lunch, but then I've got to pick up the check, and then it's all, blah, blah, blah. we don't do well when somebody extends to us grace. That's exactly what the Lord's doing. He's telling us how he is going to keep his promises. I think that's a good definition for covenant. If you don't know what the biblical view of covenant is, it's that God keeps his promises. And so what we're going to do um, with, with the time we've gotten is we're going to look at two specific promises we see in this passage. They're gonna be specific, but they're gonna step back and show the whole scope. These promises, yes, they deal with David and, and, and the Lord Jesus who comes from him, but really these promises reach back to the very beginning and they stretch forward to the very end. And we're gonna see how, what, how God keeps his promises and what it means for us. So the first promise, the first promise that God keeps, you see we, we see here with David is the promise of dominion. 
promise of dominion. If covenant was a fun word, so is dominion. It's like, that sounds good. Amen. What in the world does that mean? Well, let's look back in the Bible, see if we can figure it out. We see, we see beginning when God creates the heaven and the earth, and he forms man from the dust of the ground. He forms a woman from the rib, side of Adam, this, that, and the other. What does he do? He expresses his intent, his desire, and his plan for our lives. Genesis 1, verse 26. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. What in the world does it mean to have dominion? What do we see in their lives? We see that they work and they keep the garden. Or, as I'll put it, they sweat and they see the results. They sweat and they see the results. Our first house my wife and I bought was in Lebanon, Tennessee. You ever heard of Lebanon? Probably not. Home of Cracker Barrel, you're welcome. Lebanon, Tennessee, it was a rental property. If you've ever owned a rental property or rented a rental property, what happens is you don't take care of it. And so I'm telling you what, why do we get this house? It's such a cheap price. Well, I'll tell you why. I looked out in my back door and the, um, the backyard looked like Jurassic Park. It was nuts though. Things were falling all over, massive trees just down in the back and just left them. We, we were poking through, picking through things, seeing what we we're gonna have to do. And we found like a tent where somebody had been living underneath one of our down trees on our property, crazy. And so for the next years, three, four years, I don't have it, nights, weekends, guess what I was doing? I was out in that yard and I was sweating. I was doing work. I'm getting my ax and doing whatever else. Like, baby, you impressed, right? Just getting out there, getting after it. And there came a time, there came a time I was able to look out over my backyard. No longer was it Jurassic Park. But what did I see? I saw results. I'm like, that felt good. That's it. Maybe for you it's yard work or any number of stuff. Maybe it's a, a project of work, whatever else. When in your life do you put in sweat and do you see results? You start to feel, okay, I, I see this. This is kind of what God has made me to be, right? That's the promise. That's the way things should be. But our sin frustrates that. Our sin enters into the picture, and there are curses that are involved with it. The Lord promises us dominion, but what do we get because of sin? We get, if you want to say, disappointment. Instead of dominion, we get disappointment. So instead of sweat and see results, we sweat and we don't see anything. Um, we don't see anything. That's kind of where you feel like you're on the treadmill of life, where you're burnt out, right? Not, not, not uh, burnt out where you're bored, but burnt out where you're working too hard and you're not seeing any results, and you're not getting anywhere. How do you know you're burnt out? You're burnt out if, if the, the most exciting things about your life are actually outside of your life. That's what I mean by that. What's in your life? In your life is your responsibilities. Uh, your responsibilities in relationships, in work, in school, whatever else. And if you're at a point where you are burnt out in your life with all those responsibilities, and the most exciting thing about your day-to-day -day is outside of that, it's, you know, the wish list you make on the internet. It's a vacation you've been spending time planning for. It's the hobby that you're spending way too much time or money on. It's some sin, like you're drinking too much or something sexual, whatever else. If the most exciting thing about your life is outside of your life, you're feeling the curse of sin. You're feeling the curse of sin. No longer dominion, but disappointment. But guess what? There's good news. Good news is that God keeps his promises. If he created us for that, guess what? He's going to make it happen. He's going to make it happen. And he's going to make it happen through the king. You can write it down and check it out later. Genesis chapter three, the Lord makes a promise. Hey, this is, this is the curses that sin has brought, but he says there'll come an offspring. It's a child. There'll come a, a child, a son, um, who is going to crush the head of the serpent and who's gonna bring uh, dominion back and really bring his people back to the garden. 
When we see little sprinklings of that through the Old Testament, if you read through, you know, Abraham, the, the blessing of Abraham we're going to see, but one of the things is that Sarah, his wife, is going to have sons, and, and, and kings of peoples will send for her. Interesting. Kings are going to come. Next, we see, you know, Rebecca's brothers, they give her, they say, may, the, may your offspring possess the gate of their, their enemies. You see a little bit of uh, possession, a little bit of um, 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 ruling type stuff in there. But finally, we get through the judges. We're like, well, that's not it. You ever read the book of Judges? Terrible. book of Judges is awful. It goes from bad to worse to terrible, just terrible, terrible, terrible. Okay, fine. And the, so they're not it, and then, then we get to David. Maybe David's it. You remember last week? No, just like Adam, what did he do? He saw what he couldn't have. It was pleasing to the eye. He desired it, so he took for himself, and he fell. It would have to be someone after David. The king's coming. And that's where you get in this passage in 2 Samuel the wordplay of house. Did you see it? David wanted to build the Lord a house. He was thinking like a building, like a temple. And the Lord said to David, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And it's not a house like a, like, you know, a palace. He's already got one of those. It's a house like a people. But it's not just a house like a whole bunch of people, though it is. It's a house like the dynasty of the king. Look at verse 12. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you. There it is, an offspring from the garden, the promise in the garden, who shall come from your very body, and I'll establish his kingdom. And he will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a fascinating question then is this Solomon. I mean, Solomon's David's son. He was the king of Israel. He wrote two books of the Bible. His name means peace. He actually built a building that's called the temple. Can't be Solomon. Why? Because he sins like his dad. Again, he sees, just like Adam, just like David, he sees what he can't have, he desires it, so he takes for himself, and, he, he, and then the kingdom's torn apart. It can't be those that come after David either. Why? Well, the Lord says in verse 14, he's talking about these earthly kings, you're going to put it that way. They will commit iniquity, that means they're going to sin, they're going to mess up. Everybody, all the sons after you, David, they're going to commit sin, and they're going to be disciplined for their sin. They're going to be disciplined with the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men. So at the end of the Old Testament, we see kings messing up, messing up, messing up, messing up. And so just as Adam is kicked out of the garden, so the kings are kicked out of the promised land. When is the one going to come? Well, he comes in Jesus. He comes in the King Jesus. The one who knew no sin, our Lord Jesus Christ, yet bore our sin on his body was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquity. The one who took the curse of the ground on himself. I was reading through with my son the other day, and it's got a picture um, in the Bible, a picture of the, uh, Jesus with the crown of thorns. It's like, why? Why did he wear thorns on his head in that crown? To show us that he is taking the curse of the ground. No longer, um, the Lord said to Adam, no longer will the ground yield its produce because of sin. There'll be disappointment. The ground will yield thorns. That's a curse of sin. Jesus takes that on himself. He even wears it. He bears it in his body on the tree. But he conquers sin and death and rises again to have an eternal dominion that God had promised. And Jesus himself is the one who builds the temple. Isn't that great? Um, John, at the end of chapter 1 in the New Testament, John reminds us that when Jesus is talking about the temple, he's talking about the temple of his body, he says. So that God's presence, we're not going to a box or a building anymore. We're going to a person. Jesus. But what temple does Jesus build? He builds his church. What does Peter tell us? That, we, that you are 
right? The temple of God as living stones being built up together in love and unity. Jesus is the king. He is the one promised long ago. He is it. And when we see it, what does it mean for our lives? It means that it brings us purpose. In some ways, it means we finally align our lives how it should have been from the beginning. Your purpose. What do I mean by that? Why are you alive? Right? What are you living for? What shapes your day-to-day? What brings purpose to your life? Because that thing pretty much is going to be the king that sits on the throne of your life. A lot of times we don't know who it is or what it is. But if you think through, what shapes my day? What brings me purpose? Is it something outside of you? Maybe if you're honest, it's, it's some sort of sexual fulfillment. That that really is what you're looking for, what you're desiring, what you want. And that's what's kind of dictating how you live. Maybe it's money. That, yeah, you want it because it's going to give you value and it's going to dictate your happiness. Or maybe it's your image that you can't get out of your own head. It's like you're living always in front of a mirror, wondering what people think about you, what they see, and that's dictating how you live. Or maybe it's politics, that the allure to be a part of some club and cause that will save America and the whole world is just too big for you to ignore. Those are are cruel and ruthless kings that will leave you in the darkness and chaos. Or maybe it's yourself. It's yourself. And we see this in the most extreme by um, kind of transgender activism. They would say that, um, we can, we can um, change objective reality because of our, our subjective feelings. That's an extreme version of it, but guess what? It hits every single one of us, kind of the follow-your-heart culture, where you make the biggest decisions of your life about how you feel somewhere deep down, who you're going to marry, where you're going to do, and even how your day-to-day goes is based on following your heart. That is going to leave you again in darkness and chaos, and some of you guys are there. Many of us have been there. All of us will be there. There's only one king, and his name is Jesus. That's the um, offense of the gospel. But the good news is there is a king, and his name is Jesus. And that means whenever we, as at baptism, they said, yes, whatever he says, I'll do. Wherever he calls me to go, whatever he commands me to do, that reality, when the king Jesus is on his throne, it gives unique direction and purpose of your life. So the challenge is where have you yet to submit to King Jesus? It's a hard thing to figure out. Let me challenge you to figure it out in community. If you're here and you haven't um, joined um, with the life and rhythm of our church, you can come to the Weekender. Figure out what it's like to plug your family here and, and plug yourself here. Or if you're in a community group, let other people in. Help me figure out what it means to submit in every area of my life to the King. Because then and then only will you have purpose in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of burnout. But the second promise we see Second big picture promise that reaches back all the way to the beginning is the promise of a family. The promise of a family. And God accomplishes that promise in the son. If the king brings purpose, guess what the son does? He brings family. And we see in the garden, Luke actually reminds us of this in Luke 3, but we see in the garden that Adam in some ways is kind of like a son of God. And in that garden, right in that reality, Adam and Eve experience rest in God's love. They experience peace in God's presence. It's like they have a, a, a real reality of belonging, like they are fully and finally home. You know, home is where the heart is. That's true if they're talking about Middle Tennessee. I'm a sojourner and a stranger in a foreign land here in North Carolina. But I'm telling you what, when I head west on I-40 and I make my way through the mountains, if you're from the west coast, we still call them things mountains, but, you know, bear with us. I make my way through the mountains, and I go over the Cumberland Plateau, and you know when things open up, when I get in the great middle Tennessee, 
and I see them rolling hills and the broad-leafed trees, and I can smell that fresh-cut hay. Guess what, baby? I'm coming home. I feel it, and I know it. Maybe you got some home in your life, too. Uh, maybe it's some sight or smell or some memory. Um, oftentimes, home for us is in the rear view, you know, where we have been. Man, if I can just get back. Sometimes it's, it's always out of reach. Man, if I, can, if I can just get that job or get that person, get that whatever else. That sense of home is what we were made for. It's what we're reaching toward. But we can never find it. Why? Because of sin. If sin breaks our, uh, the purpose, leads us to disappointment. Sin breaks us being in a family and leads us to isolation. Second, Adam and Eve sin, everything changed. They hide from God. They are exiled from the garden. And you know it too. You know it too. I mean, the Lord is um, Lord by his spirit. That means if you want to think of it this way, he's everywhere. But why is it that after you fall into the same sin pattern, the same struggle, you promise yourself you never do again, you promise your community group or whomever else you never do it again, why is whenever you screw up again, you turn off the lights, you feel far from God? We know he is Lord by his spirit. Why do we feel far? It's because we're, that sin keeps us from home, leads us to isolation, to shame. And so God is a God of covenant. It means he keeps his promises. If he created us for that reason, guess what? He's gonna make it happen and he's gonna make it happen through the son. We see that promise in Abraham. Remember Abraham, Father Abraham, he had many sons. But for a while, Father Abraham didn't have anybody. And that was the problem. See, look at chapter 12 of Genesis. Remember the garden, Adam and Eve? Kind of the next big pillar moment, if we're reading through the Bible, comes with Abraham. Adam and Eve lost their home. What does God promise Abraham? Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to him, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's like, hey, what you've been wrestling with, struggling through, wandering about in, that's not where you're supposed to be. I'm about to lead you home, Abraham, and I'm gonna make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Sounds almost like what he said to David, make his name great so David would bless others. But how? How is the Lord gonna make him a blessing? Through the son. Abraham didn't have a son, right? Until the Lord made it happen. And David... David, even, if, even though he had maybe a family at this time, how is the promise going to be realized? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, or 7, verse 12, this, this one, the son who will come from your very body. It's just like Abraham. Yes, Abraham, your son, your beloved son, whom you love. This son of David will be the one through whom the promise of Abraham, through whom the promise of family will work and will come. But the son of David is also gonna be what? The son of God. Do you see that in verse 14? 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse 14. He says, and more, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So no, David, it's not gonna be any of your screw up children. It's going to be my very son. And that's what Matthew's picking up on. You know how Matthew begins his gospel? Beginning of the New Testament. Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let's just stop right there. He's, he's picking up that thread from Adam. The genealogy, that's the begats in the Bible you usually skip over in your reading plan. The begats, the begats, 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 blah, blah, blah. That's usually genealogy. But what does the word mean? It's the genesis. The, the genesis. Well, we've heard that before. The beginning. 
this is the true beginning. This is God's creative purposes being realized, not just way back there at the garden, but here and now in this person, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Here he is. He is the king. The king will have an eternal dominion, the son of Abraham. Here he is. He is the promised son that will bring us back to his family. And this is the key in a way that unlocks the whole Bible, that all of the many threads of God's promises are woven together in the person of his son. It unlocks the whole Bible. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and the host is a nominally and ethnically Jewish person. And the host was kind of talking to a Christian and like, hey, isn't that, isn't that kind of what Christians say? That like in the Old Testament, it was about like one family back then and there, but now like we're all God's family. So that back then God had rules for like some kids, but now he's got rules for all of us because we're all children of God. It's like, oh, that's close, but no. Why? It forgets about the son, Jesus Christ. It's not about going from one family to a universal family. It's not even about going from like one ethnic people to a church. As Paul puts in 1 Corinthians, it is about all of God's promises being yes and amen in Jesus Christ so that all these varied threads of what God has designed and purposed are woven together in and through his son. And yes, even the thread or the purpose of family, of belonging. Listen to the radio the other day and uh, Waylon and Willie and the boys came on. Some people didn't know this song last service. I'm gonna sing it for you. You know, mamas, why don't you let your babies grow up and be cowboys? Mamas, right? Why not? You know why? Because they'll never stay home and they're always alone, even with someone they love. I think most of, more of us are cowboys than we realize. You know why? Because some of us can never stay home. Some of us have that restless heart. And it's funny, we can laugh when Waylon's singing it, but it ain't funny when it's the way we're living. And we're always thinking about the new and the next. We can never be where we are because we always wanna be somewhere else, with someone else, doing something else. We got a restless heart, we can never stay home. Or maybe we're always alone, even with those that we love. You know, again, it's, we can find nowhere safe, nowhere we can let our guard down, nowhere we can just be us, like we actually belong. And it, it just hurts whenever you're sitting across the table or sitting in the same room with somebody that you know you're supposed to be genuine and real with and you still feel distant. You still feel isolated. You still feel never at home and always alone. How can we be brought home? Through the Son, through Jesus Christ. Salvation in the New Testament is, is, is pictured, obviously it's a spiritual reality, but it's pictured in like ways we can understand. So when Jesus talks about him being the vine and us as the branches, what is he saying? That if we wanna say salvation or all the promises, how are they ours? If we are engrafted or brought into bear with the Lord himself. Or think about baptism. What does baptism show? Paul tells us in Romans 6. It shows that we've been united with Christ. So that the spirit of the living God has so joined us with our savior, Jesus Christ, so that when Jesus was lowered in the tomb, it's almost like our way of living, our old life is dead and buried with him. So that when he is raised to a victorious and resurrection life, that's the life we are raised to now by his spirit. And that's the promise of sonship, not just like inheritance. That's a big deal though in the New Testament that the son, all right, the, the firstborn son gets the inheritance and guess what? We all get it with him. So everything that is Jesus, he shares with us. That's incredible. 
What does Paul hit in Romans chapter 8? What do we have in the Son? Look at this. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. Paul reminds, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That sounds a lot like the curse of sin. Maybe you're living under that curse now, that spirit of slavery that binds you in fear. Well, guess what? When you come to Jesus, when you trust in him, when you find your life hidden in him, what are you given? You are given the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Super important. Who calls God his Abba? Put it that way. Who and who alone, when he's talking to the Lord, can call him Abba? This is where the Sunday school answer works. Jesus. Jesus. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Abba, Father. He's crying out. Those are his words and his alone. How then can we call God our Abba if we have his spirit of sonship? If we have been so united to Christ so that our very life and identity is hidden in him? If we come to the Son, we are brought into the family. Not only the family of the church, that's the big deal though, right? You're baptized into a body of believers, but also the family of God the Father and the eternal love he has for his Son and the bond of the Spirit. That is ours when we are in Christ. So if you are wandering and wondering if you'll ever have a place to belong, you do. You're created for it, and it's been made happen through the Lord Jesus. You are God who keeps his promises in the Son. You know, God creates us for a purpose. He creates us for a reason, he creates us according to his design and he makes it happen in our lives. And when our eyes are open to it, it just floors us, doesn't it? Maybe you've been floored before. I'll tell you what David is. Look at this. We've read the first 17 verses of this chapter. Look at the next verse. We talked about, we showed and read and talked through how God just made these promises and made them happen and is gonna do it. How does David respond in verse 18? Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He said, who am I, oh Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You've done all this in my past. I can't even believe it. But yet that, all the past stuff was just a small thing in your eye. Why? Because you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. I'm floored by what you, not only you've done, but what you're doing, what you will do. And here's a tough um, 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 little clause to translate, but it says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord. Now, some people go back and forth. Is that a question or is that a statement? The question form would be like this. And maybe your Bible puts it this way. Um, um, is this the way you deal with, with men? Like, is this the way you deal with people? Or it's a statement. Hey, this is the way he deals with people. Yes, a one-sided grace. The covenant that he makes, he creates, he makes, he keeps. Is this the way God deals with people? Yes. And can you imagine when David feels the curtain drawn back in his life and he sees all the threads coming together in this son and this king who is to come? I pray that the Lord would bring you that moment of clarity here today. So often in life, we can feel like we're on the treadmill. Again, like we don't know really what we're doing. We're not really sure exactly where we're going, if anywhere at all. But there are moments, aren't there? Using the rear view. Whenever you can look back and say, oh yes, now I see. That God, you are working all of those things in that season to lead me to this point. Now I get it. What would it look like for you to have that moment of clarity now in the present? 
You can see your life not as aimless, purposeless wandering or discouragement, but as aligned with purpose and belonging in Jesus. What would it look for you now to be floored by the covenant promises of God that reaches all the way back to creation, stretches all the way into the future, and yes, even brings you and your story into the picture. Well, if how David responds, he just went in and sat. It's like he had nothing left. Lord, all I can do is just sit and be washed over with your grace and with your goodness. So what would it like for you to sit and to be washed over with the grace and the goodness of God? Stop twiddling your thumbs thinking what you are going to do for God and turn your eyes to Jesus and see what God has done for you to bring you a purpose and to bring you back into his family. Let's pray together. Our Father, help us to see. Help us to see the curse of our sin in our lives. This aimlessness, this purposelessness, this burnout isn't just like because of stuff outside of us. It's because of our heart. That we have turned our back on you. That we have put our, ourselves as king in your place. Just drill into us the realization of, of the curse of sin in our life so that you can tear away the veil and show us fully and finally your glory in the face of your son. Whatever we're looking for, whatever we're scratching for, searching for, Lord, may we come to Jesus this morning and see it all played out in him. Lord, we just want to sit and let that wash over us what you want to do for our future, what you want to do for our marriages, what you want to do for our family, what you want to do for our church. Not because of what we've done, because of what you've done and what you're doing in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.